You may be seated. So my name is Scott, and I want to welcome you here. I'm the lead pastor in this church, at least that's what they tell me. And this morning, as we kick off the church year, as we start a new year, I know it's not a calendar year, but in a very real sense, a new year for so many of us, I want to just ask the question, which I often do at this time of year, what are we about as a church? What are we about as a church? Where is our focus What do we want to invite people towards? And a number of years ago, we studied, as I recall, hundreds of verses of Scripture asking this question, God, what do you want us to be as a church? And then we we sort of in a survey fashion did this, and then we we kind of encapsulated it down and down and down into a, a very biblical statement about who we are. And it's sort of our vision or purpose statement, which is on the wall behind me here. On my right, your left, it begins, and then it shifts to the other side. I'd like us to read it together out loud. So let's read it together. We're here to exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Therefore, in His power... While demonstrating his love, we will reach, teach, and equip people to know, love, and serve him. And so we're really saying, which is so in keeping with scripture, that God is to have the place of primacy in our life, first place in our life. And out of this, our life is one that exalts Jesus Christ in all that we say and do that we do these things, that the normal Christian life is lived in the power of the Spirit, in His power. That we're never expected to live the Christian life in our own strength, but regularly, and in fact daily, we just offer ourselves, and would you fill me with your Spirit? And then as we go out and live, we live life in an attractive, flavorful way. The Bible says that we'll be known by his love in working in and through us in a way that's uh, demonstratingly different. And that when we see people and these statements are written in parallel, we're going to invite them into a personal relationship with Jesus as Savior and Lord. We're going to reach them and we're going to teach them. We're going to help them grow up in Christ so that they can be then equipped to go based on how God has gifted them to serve. So we reach, teach, and equip, and in parallel to know, love, and serve. This is what we are about as a church. And the talk I want to give today uh, uh, sort of resonates with this. And I want to read a couple of verses of scripture that will sort of overarch what we're going to talk about, and we're going to be looking at a number of different passages today, but it's written from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 43, he says this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. And then God says, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The Spirit of God is inviting us, I believe, and many of us to step away from former things, things that have been holding us back in life, things that have been holding us back from seeing that vision type statement recognized fully in our life because he wants to do a new thing. 
And so I'm going to invite, I've been inviting him to do this in my life, and I will in yours as well, to speak very directly into your life about this, what that exactly might mean for you. As we start the church here, many of us, and this has been my own experience, we come with good intentions, and, and that's a good thing. We celebrate that. But can I challenge each of us to go beyond good intentions? Because what I've often found is those good intentions, as, as life begins to crowd in around us, begin quickly to slide off to the side. I challenge you to move beyond good intentions. And so this morning, really what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to engage one thing. There's a number of verses in Scripture, ideas in Scripture, that have this idea of one thing, that the Spirit of God wants to give to you or receive from you. One thing that the Spirit of God wants for you or from you. And of course, this one thing is not me-centered, it's God-centered, and sort of this Oh, if, if I could give an overarching question, it would be, God, what is the one thing that you want to be different in my life? What is the thing that you want for me or from me? And so coming out of this Isaiah passage, what I'm going to do is ask you three or four questions, one thing questions, that have that idea right embedded in the verses we're going to be looking at, and say, God, what's this one thing that you would have for me? To prayerfully ask that question. And so the first question is this one. What one thing do I desire from God? What one thing, as I'm heading into the fall, what is the one thing I desire from God? If you know the life of David, you know that David, King David of Israel, was known as a man after God's own heart. And it may well be that one of the reasons he was given that designation by God is he had this very singular focus and desire, a one-thing focus. And we can read about it in Psalm chapter 27. Let me read to you what he says. Psalm 27 Verse 4, Psalm 27. Just give me a second here and I'll flip over. Got to take the glasses off, unfortunately. Psalm 27, verse 4. David says this, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. David is saying, listen, I want to be deeply ingrained relationally with God. I don't want to just know about him. I want to go deep, deep in my relationship with him in his very presence and experience his goodness in very personal ways. If there's one thing I need, David says, in the good times of life, it's God. And if there's one thing equally so, if there's one thing I need in life during the difficult seasons of life, It's God himself. I want to be and live in his presence. I don't want it just to be an intellectual pursuit. I want to experience healthy, vibrant relationship with him. That's a great goal to have. So I don't know here what you're here with. Maybe that's your goal this morning. Maybe, maybe the one thing for you is that there's, there's someone that you desire from God, is that you, there's someone in your life, maybe it's a spouse or a friend or a family member that you love deeply who's not in relationship with Christ. 
and you're saying, God, the one thing I desire, the one thing I love above all else right now is that you would use me to point that person to Christ. I long to see that person come into relationship with Jesus. God, would you bring this person to Christ? Or maybe you're here today and you're struggling with some kind of an addiction or some kind of a stronghold in your life, and the one thing that you would long for is that that barrier would be removed so that you can go deeper and further in your relationship with God, and just so life will be better, actually. And so God's, you say, God, I surrender this to you. May, may you help me to no longer be kept back from fully pursuing you. Or maybe you look at your marriage and you not, it's not where you thought it would be. And the one thing you desire is that God would bring healing into your relationship. What's the one thing that you desire from God? David talks about it in verse 4 there of 27. Second question. When it comes to your spiritual life or your relationship with God, what is the one thing that I lack? What's the one thing that I lack? And there's this very interesting story over in Mark chapter 10, second book of the New Testament, where Jesus is interacting with this younger man. And he's a, it's, the scripture says that he's the rich young ruler. And he's a, he's a leader in the community, he's a community person. And he seeks Jesus out one, one day, and he asks this penetrating question. He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at this guy, we're going to hear later that he loved him, and he understands what's going on in this guy's life, in this guy's heart. And he says to him, obey the commands, because he knows how this guy is oriented. And the guy says to him quite proudly, check, check, and check. I'm one of the religious elite, Jesus, and I follow all the rules. And so Jesus looks past his outward obedience and looks into his heart, which God always does. And he says, here's what's holding back your relationship with God. Here's what's preventing you from having a personal relationship with Jesus that has eternity stamped on it. And Jesus customizes what he says to this person, which he always does. You really don't see him saying the same thing to anybody else. But he says this to this guy, and it's pretty strong medicine. So listen to the first words and how Jesus sort of is gentle with him at first. In Mark chapter 10, verses 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he knows he's going to give him some tough medicine. So we know that the words he's saying are not just out of some book somewhere. He deeply loved this person. He says to him, one thing you lack, rich young ruler. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And because of the difficult thing he said to this young man, that's why the passage says Jesus loved him. And so he identified in this guy, this guy had in the place of primacy in his life material things. And he somehow thought, if I just have enough stuff and I make that the most important thing in my life, that will give me security in life. 
And this is what he was truly looking towards for life as he understood it. And Jesus said, God has to be first in your life. Absolute first. Are you willing to give it up and put him first? And it says in verse 22, at this the young man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And so God specifically shows him the one thing that he lacked and he's unwilling to do what would have benefited him spiritually. And let me just say, there's some of us here, and I say this in love, but there's some of us here that God has shown the one thing to, and yet there's been no obedience. And probably it's a different thing for you than it was for the rich young ruler. But he's shown the one thing, and in some cases there's been no obedience. You know, I was interacting with this person um, some time ago, not a long time ago, but some time ago, and uh, just know that they were a person that have known Christ as Savior for a long time, in fact, for decades, and, and had a very significant conversion to Christ. They began to understand what it meant to walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. And so they entered into the Spirit-filled life and began discovering their spiritual gifts and using them and serving. And God was using them. They were growing. They had a vibrant relationship with Him. He used this person to lead many people to Christ. And this person just developed in maturity in their relationship with Jesus. But by their own admission over time, They just became complacent. They, in fact, became lazy in their relationship with God. They rested on their former laurels. When people would come to them now, they, rather than really trusting in getting a word from God to speak specifically into that situation, they just said, well, I've heard this before and I know I need to say this. And their relationship with God became dull. And they didn't read their Bible much. They prayed only when they had to. And surprise, surprise, their spiritual life was on the rocks. Not close to God anymore. And we talked about this idea of the one thing. And they finally bowed the knee again. And like the old commercial, sort of tasted it again for the first time. And over the months, their relationship with God has woken up and become vibrant again, rather than lazy and complacent and dull. What's the one thing you lack? For some people here, it might be wrestling with tithing. And you know that the scripture, both in the old and the new, gives this truth, the biblical truth that I will give God my first off the top before anything else, and my best. And it's particularly in the New Testament, it says we do this with a joyful sort of attitude of liberality and sacrifice, and we trust him to bless the rest. And you've been fighting this. 
And you've been making all kinds of sort of empty rationalizations why, you know, you don't need to do this or you're a special case or somehow you don't think it's in the Bible and you make all the empty rationalizations and God is saying, do you really believe me or not? Are you going to trust me in this or not? And then there are perhaps some here that have just drifted into habitual, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And the Spirit of God has convicted you very pointedly about this. Uh, Others that God has sent into your life have spoken to you about this. They're praying for you. Is that the one thing? That it's time to repent. Not just to seek forgiveness, but to repent. They go hand in hand. Where God dramatically turns us away from that. What's the one thing you lack? Third question, what one thing do you need to let go of from the past in particular? What one thing from do you need to let go of? Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and uh, he's reflecting on his life in some way, and he says, he says to them, listen, in the book of Philippians, I want you to know Christ. And what he means by that, if you read the book, is he doesn't want you to just have an intellectual grasp. And so many of us settle for just having the right answers if someone asks us a question about God. And Paul says there's an incredible emptiness to that, just having the right answers. It needs to be actualized in our life. It needs to penetrate our life. It needs to shape and form in our life so that as we were singing earlier this morning, that we would become more and more like Christ. And so he says, I want you not just to know about Christ, but I want you to know him deeply, to experience him, to know the power of his suffering. And then he says to them in light of this, in verse 13 and 14 of 3, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of this. But one thing, one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm forgetting what is behind and pressing on to what God has for me in the next stage. Now, we don't know what he was referring to when he's talking about letting things go. So let me just make some guesses, and that's all they are, are guesses. So I might be wrong about this. But it could be that the thing he's talking about letting go of is the guilt of being the guy who persecuted the church. Before Paul came to know Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and had a personal encounter with him and bowed the knee to Jesus and his life did a 180 shift. Before that, he was like the chief persecutor of the church. He had the warrants. He had the authority. And he was deeply passionate about arresting people, imprisoning people, torturing people, and killing people that would not recant on their faith. And he did all of these things simply because people were followers of Jesus. We know that he was involved in the stoning of Stephen. He stood there, the passage says, giving his approval. And so it could be that he wrestled with the guilt of having, and he knew he was forgiven, but just the guilt of all that he had done. 
And so maybe you're here this morning and there's some guilt from the past that's holding you back. And Jesus, like with Paul, he wants to just say, I've forgiven you of that and I remove that guilt that's holding you back so that you can take your next steps, the next steps that I have for you. Maybe, maybe for Paul, the thing he's talking about is all the, the, the trauma associated with the suffering that he went through subsequent to coming to Christ. After he'd given his life to Jesus, we know from his story that simply because he was now a follower of Christ, not only was imprisoned for years on end, but in a variety of prisons, but on five separate occasions, he was, he was whipped. And they would whip you 40 times. Imagine what that guy's back looked like. It would have been shredded. On three separate occasions, he was beaten with rods. On different occasions, because they were transporting him to trials and things like that, because he was a follower of Jesus, he was shipwrecked. They, They tried to stone him to death. They picked up stones like he did with Stephen and they stoned him and they left him. They thought he was dead. They left him for dead. So think of the psychological baggage he could have been carrying from those numerous events. And maybe he's just saying in this Philippians 3 passage, I needed to let go of those things from the past, just like Isaiah did said, let go of those things. Jesus, would you help me let go of those things so that I can press forward with Christ? Maybe you're holding on to something from your past like that. Maybe maybe in the past you've failed at something and somehow you've believed the lie and internalized the idea that um, because you failed in this particular area, This is actually an expression of who you are, that in fact you are a failure because you failed in this one particular area. And somehow you've gotten mixed up and you're thinking that I am a failure because of this one failure. And Jesus says, let me take care of that. Yeah, you you blew it here, it was wrong, you failed, you did whatever, you sinned. But I can cleanse you for that. I can forgive you. I can release you from that. And this is not an expression of who you are because you're a child of the king, actually. You're a saint, the Bible says. And maybe, maybe another thing is maybe you've sinned and you're thinking, I, I just I can't get past that and I don't think God is adequate to this, you know, and, and I think I've crossed some imaginary line and I've gone so far he could never deal with this. I just want to remind you that the Bible is very clear about this, that the grace of God is greater than all of our sin. That when I come to Jesus sincerely and I just own my stuff and I admit it and I ask for forgiveness and I repent, that his grace is applied and we are cleansed and we are forgiven and he wants us to leave that behind and move forward. The fourth fourth question is what one promise do you need to claim? What one promise do you need to claim? Now if you know Again, if you know the story of David, you know that as a teenager, he was anointed to become the next king of Israel. He was chosen by God through the, 
the, the prophet, and the prophet comes, and there's all these brothers, and David, and, and the pro, all the, uh, I mean, the prophet is thinking it's all these other bro- brothers that are going to be the king, because they, they looked quite impressive on paper, but God says, no, it's going to be this young teenage boy that's out in the field looking after the sheep, and so they bring David in, and he's anointed to be the next king of Israel, but in the interim, there's many years that go by before he actually becomes king, and God uses him during that time and after he becomes king in very extraordinary ways. But at the same time, he goes through incredible difficulties with people chasing him and trying to kill him and all kinds of things. And if you read his story, it's like he takes one step forward with God and then the circumstances of life, in a certain sense, knock him back two or three steps over and over again. And he writes extensively about this in the Psalms. And if you read his comments about what's going on and churning in his life during that time, it points, it seems, he says, like, like nothing is going my way. And basically he is saying, there are so many questions I have about the circumstances that I'm grappling with, questions for which there seems to be no answers. And things are not playing out the way I had anticipated, the way I had hoped. But then he, after he expresses his concern about these things, then he says, and he always does this, if you read the stories. Here's one of the things he says in Psalms 56, verses 9, to 10, 9 and 10. He says this, despite all of this stuff going on, this one thing I know. One thing I know. God is for me. God is for me. And then in verse 11 it says, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? There's so many things, David says, that I don't know what to do, that, but I do know this, that God is for me, that he is enough, that he is on the throne, and he is for me. In the last while, for Debbie and I, our lives have been swirling around. And there's been lots of confusion and uncertainty in four major areas of life. Now, they, might seem, they may not seem too major for you, but they're fairly major for us, at least in our estimation. And so all this confusion and uncertainty in four different major areas of life. And there's been so many things we don't know what to do. So many questions for which there seems to be no answers. And in a very real sense, it feels like we take one step forward and get knocked back two or three. And so I would suggest that the one thing for us as a couple has has been, God, would you lead us? Would you give us clarity? And we've been praying about this as there's all these questions that need to be addressed. Would you... In this one thing idea, would you give us clarity and help us to know what to do in these areas? We've been praying, others have been praying with us. In the last three weeks, I believe God has supernaturally, and I say that deliberately, supernaturally given us four answers in three areas of the four areas of our life. I'll say that again because it's a little confusing. He's given us... Four answers 
in three areas of the four areas of confusion and swirl in our life. Now, let me just say this. Certainly, it's by no means all the questions being answered. In fact, it's just a few of the questions, and there's way more questions still outstanding than have been answered. And interestingly enough, I said the one thing for us was that he would give us clarity to these questions, which he has done and is beginning to do. But if I could put a cherry on top of the prayer request, it would have been, not only would you give us clarity on this, but would you say yes to these things? And so what he's actually done is he's given us three answers, but in every one of the cases, it's been a very clear no. No. In each case, the answer was a dramatic no. In fact, on more than one occasion, it was like a big stop sign appeared right in front of me, and at one time, I could have reached out and just touched it. So let me tell you about the latest one. I've been speaking with, negotiating with, interviewing four different people in recent weeks for the worship arts pastor position we're looking to hire. And uh, the first three were no for one reason or another. But the fourth person seemed quite promising, and did, but did some things that made me deeply reticent to move forward. I was quite hesitant, and I didn't know if I should continue the process. I interviewed them once over Skype and checked all their references and those kinds of things, and uh, wasn't sure if we should continue the process because of something they had done. And I spoke to them on Monday night of this, just this last week, and I said, on Wednesday night, I will call you back, and uh, I'll let you know what we're thinking and what we're going to do. But to be honest with you, I was deeply confused about what to do, didn't know what to do. And I was up most of the night, Tuesday night, praying about this and thinking about this. And I came to work Wednesday morning and I talked with Steph, who's our pastor for our youth and she works a little bit in the office too. And uh, I told her about this and I hadn't told her much about it before. And I just told her a little bit about this, and I told her I was confused, and that I was looking for clarity from God about what to say in this phone call that was coming in like eight hours or something like that. And she listened to me, and then she said something, which I think was a word from God, that just stopped me in my tracks. And then she said, and can I pray for you? And she began to pray for me. And she asked Jesus for clarity for me about this issue. And at the moment she did that, God literally gave me a, a very compelling memory from my past. And then immediately afterwards, this big red stop sign that I could reach out and touch right in front of me. And God said, call this person tonight and tell them, no, you're not going ahead. Well, she continued to pray. She wasn't done praying. And she keeps praying. And as she's praying, about 10 seconds after the stop sign appeared, my phone rang. And I probably shouldn't, but I did. I peeked. And it was this person calling me. And they said, I accepted another position last night. And at that moment, the moment they said that, even though I was going to say no to them that night, there was this incredible peace that the Bible says goes beyond our ability to comprehend. Peace from God for me 
in this situation. Peace that goes beyond understanding. And it was, for me, this incredibly powerful reminder that even though the answer was no, in the midst of a series of no answers, even though there's still more questions outstanding than there are answers, that God is on the throne, that God is with me, and that he can be trusted. What is the one thing for you? You know, there's so many promises in the book. And I want to just remind very quickly you of a few of them. But as I, as I articulate these ones from Scripture, I want you to be, uh, be aware of the fact that you have to carefully study them in their context to really get the full meaning of them. But listen to these promises from Scripture. God promises us in His Word to meet every need we have according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He promises us that we will never be tempted in, to a point beyond what we can bear and that every time we're tempted, he will provide a way of escape without exception. He promises us to forgive all of our sins. God promises to make all things, it says in the book of Romans, especially the difficult, especially the bad things. He promises to make all things work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God promises that if you ever feel alone or abandoned, which we were singing about earlier in the service, that he will never leave you. Everybody else might leave you, but he will never leave you or forsake you. God promises, it says in the Psalms, to be an ever-present help in trouble. God promises to give strength to the weary, it says in Isaiah. God promises to guide you and give you direction, it says in the book of James. God promises to give you a peace, as I referenced earlier, a peace that goes beyond human comprehension. Your mind will get blown by this peace. You won't be able to put it into words, and it, in a sense, it'll overwhelm you in a good way. God promises in Christ to give power to defeat Satan and the works of the evil one. God promises that in the book of Romans that nothing, and I mean nothing, can separate you from the love of God. God promises that we are more than conquerors in Christ. You know, there's a lot of things I don't know, but I do know this. God is on the throne, and God is for me. What is your one thing?